Welcome to Snack Break. We speak to experts mostly about policy, but also about snacks. At the end of the Cold War, the number one threat to U.S. national security, the Soviet Union, collapsed. The U.S. was left as the world's only superpower. However, instead of retreating, the U.S. and its military maintained their international presence and engagement around the world. The U.S. has a total of 800 overseas military bases in 70 different countries. And yet, in almost all of these places, the U.S. is not fighting a war. What is the U.S. military doing, and why is it doing it? It's a $100 billion question. This is Snack Break. I'm Aru Mukherjee. And with me today is Derek Reveron, a professor of national security affairs at the Naval War College in Newport, Rhode Island. Derek, thank you so much for joining. Thanks, Arup, for having me. So uh, let's start with the big idea. You, you just released a book, a second edition, and it's called uh, Exporting Security, International Engagement, Security Cooperation, and the Changing Face of the U.S. Military. All right, what does, what does exporting security mean? I, I thought exports were only things like bananas, steel, and, and like barbecue. Well, one of the big exports from the United States is, in fact, military hardware. And like when weapons it, and things. Weapons, yeah. helicopters, jets, uh, tanks, and other equipment, communications gear, for example. And the basic idea behind the book was that during the Cold War, if you wanted to understand U.S. foreign policy, you would look at U.S.-Soviet interactions. Today, I argue, if you want to understand U.S. foreign policy, don't look at great power relations. What you need to do is look at countries that face security deficits. Security deficits. They can't it, provide for themselves or something? Or? Ex- exactly. So it's when a country can't meet its national security obligations mm-hmm. without external assistance. So okay. in this case, it's the U.S. That's the power that comes in to help out. Exactly. Okay. And, and so in some cases, when you're dealing with a country such as Nigeria struggling against a group like Boko Haram, yeah. the U.S. can provide uh, intelligence assistance, help professionalize their military, Um, Or it also works with developed countries. So, for example, if France wants to do peacekeeping in Mm -hmm. Mali, France needs the United States to fly its troops to Mali. Or in the case today, uh, very concerned about North Korea's ballistic missile program, the U.S. uh, provides uh, training and equipment to its allies, Japan and Korea. So we're exporting our our, our hardware, which we've been doing for a long time, but also we're exporting training and, and training, assistance. Training, education. And How many countries are we doing this with? Uh, it's almost every country. In the world? Almost every country in the world. I could probably count on about two hands of countries that we don't do some sort of uh, security cooperation, which, right. which we think of as all U.S. military interactions with a foreign military. So we are, Wow. So it's like a place like North Korea, we're obviously not involved there. No, but nothing with North Korea, but... but we do with e- Russia. We yeah. do with Russia. We have, uh, we have joint military exercises with them, don't we? We, we do it with China. China uh, participates in the world's largest maritime exercise wait, called wait, we, we participate with China? We, we, in fact, invited China. So uh, a year and a half ago was the first time. It's called RIMPAC, Rim of the Pacific. It's the world's largest naval exercise. Uh, China came about a year and a half ago, and they're, they're invited to come again uh, this coming summer in 2018. You know, if we're involved with all these countries, what happens when those two countries disagree? So take, for instance, like Pakistan and India. We have this partnership with both of them, and it's kind of a strange situation because we, you know, they don't like each other. Does that mean we get pulled into those that, that's, disputes? And that's one of the pitfalls. 
um, because it's a non-exclusive relationship the United States has with almost every country in the world. Some relationships are more important than others. So Pakistan is in the top five of recipients of U.S. assistance. But as you, as you know, the U.S. and India are developing a robust security relationship as right. well. The challenge for the U.S., I would say, both with Pakistan, with uh, Georgia in the post-Soviet space, um, even in, uh, in the Middle East, is not to get pulled into those conflicts. Right, but there's a risk, right? There, there's always a risk. I mean, is, so is it, a, is it a good idea? Does it, you know, how does it help the U.S.? Why, why should we be running around and, you know, uh, helping Niger or Mali with their, with their security deficits. How does that help the United States? Yeah, well, there's, a, I think, several ideas underlie it. So I really enjoyed, um, I think, Madeleine Albright, when she was Secretary of State, she was talking with the Chairman uh, Colin Powell, and Secretary Albright said something to the point of, well, what's the point of having this great military that you're always talking about if you never use it? People inside the military get upset by that because they typically think the military is used to fight and win the nation's wars. And that's an important function, absolutely. But another important part of defense strategy is building global security. And what that means is, is training, equipping, and partnering with almost every military in the world. Is that, is, does that ensure that we have close enough relationships with those? You know, if we have an intimate idea of Chinese, the Chinese military or the Russian military, both it might prevent us from going to war because we cooperating with them, but also maybe because we kind of know how they work and operate? Is that kind of the idea? One, one of the, the big ideas uh, under security cooperation is military diplomacy. And the idea is when the U.S. and the Chinese military interact, it's improving transparency, to your point. Yeah. So we understand each other. Yeah. Uh, we understand each other's red lines um, and in a way to reduce tension. But with the smaller countries, you know, it's probably less about that because we're not threatened by some no, of these smaller countries, right? That, no, that's right. And so we wouldn't, we aren't worried, for example, of um, let's take El Salvador in, yeah. in the hemisphere. Um, we're not worried about El Salvador attacking the United States, but instead we're worried about the security deficit in El Salvador that's led to the rise of gangs, which eclipse uh, the size of local militaries. And so the U.S. works with the Salvadoran military in an attempt to provide national security for Salvadorians. Mm. So there, I would say there is an American political cultural side to this. Are we trying um, to get goodwill? Is that the idea? There, I think there's goodwill. It's also threats don't stay isolated anymore. Um, disease is probably a better example because disease knows no boundary. Mm. So two years ago, the U.S. Uh, sent uh, about 3,000 military to West Africa uh, to engage, to, to build hospitals uh, and to help against the Ebola crisis. Does this stuff work, though? I mean, you know, if we give $1.5 billion to, to Pakistan, they still got 99 problems in their backyard. That's right. You know, how do we, how do we protect against... Uh, is, is it naive to think that if we just give a little more assistance, we'll be able to solve their governing problems or any other, you know, government's issues with corruption, et cetera? Without a doubt, I mean that—that that is the big question. Does it does it work? And uh, and and I guess I'll give the the good answer uh, sometimes. Okay. Um, and the the political answer would be it's they're also U.S. foreign policy programs. So even in the case of Pakistan, the U.S. does want to help the Pakistanis professionalize. They want to help the Pakistanis against its terrorist threat. Um, but the U.S. also wants to ensure that uh, the port of Karachi remains open for U.S. military equipment that flows through uh, Pakistan to Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. So there is a quid pro quo side of this. Do you think that sometimes with the Defense Department, and it's taking on kind of a cultural diplomacy, you said it's military diplomacy, 
do you think it's kind of overstepping its bounds as, uh, as an institution, uh, taking away some focus, say, from the State Department, which has traditionally been more involved with diplomatic efforts and cultural diplomacy? I, mean, I think a big theme of your book is that, you know, the military is taking on new roles, That's right. uh, building relationships. It's, it's, you know, it's building wells. It's promoting reforms, agricultural reforms, and all these other sorts of things that were never part of the original mandate, certainly not the Department of War as it originally existed. No, and, and that's a fair point. Uh, there, there are eight chapters in the book. I mm-hmm. devote an entire chapter to objections mm-hmm. of this. And, and there, are, there are objections in places that you would, you would think, mm-hmm. you know, coming from the NGO community that says we can dig wells uh, cheaper, better mm-hmm. um, and, uh, than the military. Um, in the policy community, concerns that the military will eclipse the Department of State. And it, and it is confusing, I think, for some partners mm-hmm. of who, who is more important in the relationship, mm-hmm. the senior military officer or the U.S. ambassador. Mm-hmm. Um, and then finally, I think the third source of objections come from the military itself, mm-hmm. that people join the military to fight and win the nation's wars. They don't join the military to teach uh, Afghans marksmanship. So then, uh, so but despite all these objections, it still might be worth it. I no, mean, I, and I think that's right. And and so, since it is so non-exclusive that the U.S. is trying this all over the world uh, in many different circumstances, there there are some successes and there are some failures. Mm-hmm. And so, successes that I like to highlight, because everyone forgets, because they are so successful, mm-hmm. is that over the last twenty years, the U.S. Uh, brought. 13 countries up to NATO standards, because in 99, NATO was about 16 countries. Mm. Uh, Today, we're up to 29. That's a positive. Mm. Um, Another positive in the Western Hemisphere Mm. is U.S. assistance to Colombia, that in 2000, you had the Colombian insurgent group FARC in the hills of the capital city, and it did look like the second oldest democracy in the Western Hemisphere was going to collapse. And so the U.S., um, with important essential oversight from Congress, provided the right type of assistance. Um, Congress was very concerned uh, that this would become another Vietnam, and so they imposed strict uh, limits on initially it was 400 uniform people in Colombia at any one time. It it moved up to 800. This is Plan Colombia? Plan Colombia. Very uh, focused effort partnered with the Colombia, and then we can see today in 2017, the mm-hmm. Colombians are, they're, you know, they're celebrating peace, FARC are legitimizing it as a political party, and uh, Colombia is a very different country, and it, and it could have been a lot worse. It could have been looked like Somalia, which, which I would highlight that would be <laughs> on the failure end, right. because the U.S. has tried multiple times. Well, it's also a hard place. It's to, a hard place. Now, is that related to this idea of democracy? Because I, I thought we'd been exporting that a lot. I mean, because you can't really have one without the other, right? Or, sorry, you can't have democracy without security, right? There, I think so, and, and, that's, and that's where the, the title Exporting Security is a bit play on sort of my own research agenda, where when I went to graduate school in the 90s, it was about promoting democracy, right. and so I wrote my dissertation on U.S. efforts to promote democracy in Central and Eastern Europe. Mm-hmm. Uh, 9-11 happens, and we start to see what happens when there are security deficits, vacuums where the government can't control uh, its territory, uh, and, uh, and the U.S. really started to prior- prioritize more uh, exporting security than democracy, and it took very much this uh, security-first approach. Well, all this talk about the military is getting me a little hungry. I agree. Could you could you agree? It's time uh, for a snack. And I yeah, it's time for a snack. And I prepared a little snack for you. Um, Terry, you think we could get the uh, the almonds? So right. Oh, so, great. So those are chocolate-covered almonds. Okay. Uh, dark chocolate-covered almonds, and then I I roasted uh, and salted some almonds, and then I roasted 
um, and added some garam masala on some okay, other. Okay, so you you roasted your own. Yeah, I mean it's actually not so bad. You know, I uh, you know Mark Bittman has this you know how to cook everything. He's got a little section on how to roast almonds, okay. and you just throw it in the oven for a little while and and uh, let it happen. So yeah, these um, yeah no they're it don't take that long. What's crazy about almonds? Well, first off, I thought almonds were nuts, and it turns out. They're what's called droops. Have you heard of that? They're like, they're the same family as the peach family. Hmm. So they come in these things, um, like fleshy fruit type things, and they're the pits, the seeds almost. Um, they're, so they're, they're kind of the same as stone fruits is, mm-hmm. is the idea. I like your masala. Oh, do you? Yeah, so garam masala is a, uh, so my mom makes her own, I mean, garam masala, which is basically just pepper, green oh, cardamom, cardamom yeah. cinnamon, and cloves hmm. um, mixed in there. And then, you know, these guys over here are just the best that Whole Foods produces. Right, right. And you uh, can't go with I can dress them pretty well. And almonds. So these nuts, just very roughly, um, cost about $10. Okay. And if you add 40 to that, you get 50. And if you multiply that by 10 billion, uh, you get 500 billion, which is also the amount of money that this, that the the Defense Department has in its in its annual budget. Yeah, yeah, and and it looks like next year it'll be about seven hundred billion. Seven hundred billion is what's uh, hasn't been signed yet, but that looks like what's coming out of Congress. That's so many almonds. It's a lot of almonds. <laughs> why why, did, why does the Defense Department need so many almonds? You know, one, it, it's uh, I'm I'm going to reach back to I guess your interview with Joe Nye, um, oh, man, where 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 your setup really sort of described. You have uh, international terrorism. Um, you have the return of China and its expansive maritime claims. You have Russia invading its neighbors and annexing territory. Um, and uh, so I, I guess I would say uh, why $700 billion mm-hmm. is part of that answer. You think um, that we're dealing with new threats that require a lot more money now? Th- there, there's new threats. Uh, some of it is also you're, you have to recapitalize the force, which, which that the U.S. military has been at war for since 2001. Uh, and I and full spectrum since 2001. I would add in the aviators uh, really since 1991. So even though the Iraq war ended initially Desert Storm in 91, mm-hmm. that for the next 12 years, uh, U.S. Uh, Navy and Air Force flew something like 225,000 missions enforcing the no-fly zones. Wow. And so you add on the no-fly zone enforcement, you add on the combat operations over the last 16 years, uh, equipment gets old, it gets worn down. Mm-hmm. And so a number of bills are, are starting to come due. And, and I would add, because there was very little procurement during mm-hmm. the 1990s mm-hmm. is sort of the other factor. Is that we let, because the Defense Department, the budget was, as a percentage of GDP, the budget was higher in the 50s and 60s. Right. <clears throat> in the height of the Cold War. Uh, it was something like 9 or 10% of U.S. GDP. Right now hovering around a couple. Is that right? Yeah, I think like four-ish. Four. Um, is it, it's but it's still you know still seven hundred billion dollars feels like it, it feels like a lot of money it it, it does uh, but with a twenty trillion dollar economy right and if the federal budget is somewhere mm-hmm. about four 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 and a half trillion mm-hmm. it's it's not quite uh, it's it's still a lot of money don't don't get me wrong um, but uh, but I'll say the U S military is extremely busy yeah. Uh, and a huge role the U.S. military tries to do, and I would say with what I've been writing about with security cooperation, is conflict prevention. Mm-hmm. 
And so if you put on your old uh, deterrence hat mm -hmm. and, and how you prevent conflict is to prevent other countries from doing what you don't want. Mm -hmm. And you do that by demonstrating force. You do that by increasing uh, partnerships. Uh, and, and so it really is about conflict prevention. Yeah. And do, do you think that because of the changing role of the military over the last 20 years, that's affected some of these budgetary uh, concerns? Because if, you know, if we're trying to be friends with everybody in the world and we're cooperating more, that is going to also cost some money um, or if we're selling more weapons and things like that. Um, is that a part of the story? Well, it is. And, and you know, I'd parse it a bit. So with, within the Defense Department budget, there is security cooperation programs. So the Afghan Security Force Fund, for example, is funded through the U.S. defense budget. Mm -hmm. The U.S. taxpayer pays mm -hmm. the salaries for the Afghan military. Mm -hmm. The U.S. taxpayer wow. buys helicopters for the Afghan Air Force. Wow. The U.S. taxpayer pays for Afghans to have armored vehicles. Mm -hmm. um, and that's in the Defense Department budget. What I call normal security assistance is actually in the Department of State budget. And, and so in the case of U.S. security assistance to Israel, mm -hmm. that's funded through the Department of State the budget. The few billion that we send. Uh, yeah, it's about $3.25 wow. So, so some of this is overlapping with the with the changing role of the military. Is, is, are they coordinating it with the State Department, or is there sometimes some tension between the two? There, there can be tension, and, and that's what I would say one of the lessons too between first edition and second edition mm -hmm. is of because the yeah. of the book. Yeah, um, is there has been a concerted effort to improve oversight of these activities. Mm -hmm. So, for any. U.S. military program to take place uh, in in a in a in a normal in a country outside a combat zone. Combat zones are different, mm -hmm. but the U.S. ambassador must approve that program. Yeah. The U.S. ambassador must sign off on any sale or gift of weapons, and and so because this is a foreign policy program, um, Secretary Clinton and Secretary Gates enshrined it as sort of a dual key approach. That anytime there's a major arms sales. Both Department of State and Defense have to uh, agree. Really, um, and and that's partly on the oversight uh, is uh, is very important. Well, Derek, thank you so much for joining today. The book is exporting security, international engagement, security cooperation, and the changing face of the U.S. military. This episode of Snack Break was produced with the help of the Hauser Digital Media Team, Tara Cavanaugh and Harris Passeltiner. Introduction music was composed by Evan Fennessy. To learn more about the show or watch episodes instead of listen to them, find us on YouTube or visit our website at snackbreakshow.com. <laughs>